Well, I hope you're refreshed. I am. Turn to Revelation 12. So far today, we've looked at the king and his people, the king and his dominion. This afternoon, I'd like to look at the king and his war. The king and his war. And I'll, we'll divide our thoughts very simply this afternoon. We'd like to look first at the battles that rage on earth. Second, we'll look at the bowls of judgment from heaven. And finally, we'll look at the breaking of planet earth. So we'll look at the battles that rage on earth, the bowls of judgment from heaven, the breaking of planet earth. So picking up where we left off last time, on earth now, chaos and mayhem rule the day. First, we're looking at the battles that rage on earth, and there's three of them. And so we're subdividing our division here. The battles that rage on earth, three battles. Battle number one, Satan versus Israel. Satan versus Israel in the battles that rage on earth. Revelation 12, verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, if you know your Old Testament at all, this imagery is a clear reference to the dream Joseph had in Genesis 37, in which the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to him. This was fulfilled in part when Joseph's brothers, the 11 stars, so to speak, literally did bow down to him. It's fully fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ, in which Deuteronomy 32 says that the tribe of Joseph is treated like the firstborn of the family. And so this woman, clothed with the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars, can only be referring to the family of Jacob, to the nation of Israel. This is who the woman is. But the woman... Verse 2, the woman Israel is giving birth. She's in agony. She's in pain. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Now then another sign appears. Verse 3, a, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven crowns. This is Satan, the terrible dragon. The seven heads very possibly refer to seven great centers of rule or empires throughout the centuries, through which Satan has worked his anti-God program in terms of philosophy, leading men away from the one true God. These would be the the kingdoms of Egypt and Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and as we said this morning, final Rome, the empire of Antichrist during the tribulation period. He's said to have ten horns. This was anticipated in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8 as well. Revelation 17 tells us that this is the ten king alliance under Antichrist by Satan's power and control, the final empire of earth. And he's said to have seven crowns. Crowns may be representing the power that each kingdom had in its day and that Satan is now claiming all of it. It also may, I think, more likely be representing the fact that Seven out of ten of the nations will stay faithful to Antichrist. There will be a rebellion by three. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the crowns that he has, these are not crowns of victory at all. They're crowns of misappropriated authority, of taking what's not rightfully his. Verse 4 goes briefly back in time concerning Satan's plan, which is threefold. His, His plan is threefold. One, destroy Israel. Two, stop Jesus Christ. And three, rule the world. And we see in verse four that he's going to fail in all three. 
verse 4 of chapter 12, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is referring back to his original rebellion in which one third of the holy angels followed Satan. And then we see Satan's attempts to stop the child that is to be born of the woman, Israel, standing over her to kill him. And who is this child? Well, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Satan tried to kill him as an infant. He tried to stop Jesus at the temptation from going to the cross. But Satan will fail in all three of his plans. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so Jesus was utterly successful in his ministry and will soon rule the world. Now, verse 6 puts us back in the time of the Great Tribulation. The woman, Israel, now is fleeing into the wilderness. She's running. But God is going to preserve them. Now, they are ostensibly running from Antichrist, and this is likely speaking of Jews in and around Jerusalem or, or in the immediate area of Israel. Not all of them, but many of them. Some of them are running because they've come to faith in Christ. Satan's arch enemy. Zechariah 12.10 says that many will come to faith during this time. But God protects them for 1,260 days, three and a half years. We'll come back to that in a moment. Then you get to verse 7 and we have a description of war in heaven. The angel Michael and his angels and the angels are now casting the dragon from the presence of God to accuse the saints. But now at the three and a half year mark, Satan's access is finally denied. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. But verse 12 gives a warning that Satan knows his days are numbered, his wrath is going to be fierce. Satan, now knowing he has nothing to lose, we get back to his pursuit of the woman who had given birth to the male child. Verses 14 through 16 describe Satan unleashing a flood toward these running refugees, some sort of flood. could be a literal flood or some other uh, cataclysm of some sort. But God intervenes and saves them, and that part of the remnant of Israel is now safe. But Satan turns his sights again, verse 17, to make war on, quote, the rest of her offspring, to continue persecution and continue the killing of saved Jews and all who follow Christ, what the text says, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then this battle ends with this odd phrase in verse 17 that Satan stood on the sand of the sea. What is this? This is Satan taking his place in belief that he's the rightful ruler of the earth. It's a picture of him looking at what he thinks is his. But we see already God is beginning to save Israel. And he's got this whole group of refugees that have run away now and that are going to be protected and nourished for three and a half years. That's the first battle, Satan versus Israel. The second battle we see here we'll call the unholy trinity versus the gospel. The unholy trinity versus the gospel. 
Chapter 13 puts all together the terrible triumvirate, the unholy trinity of Satan, still pictured as the dragon, Antichrist, in verse 1, the beast rising with ten horns, seven heads, and now ten crowns. He had seven, likely a rebellion by the ten kings under, by three of the ten kings under his power. Again, we'll get to that in a moment. And then another beast, the third of the unholy trinity. Who is this other beast? Verse 11 says it is the false prophet representing Antichrist. Verse 3 tells us that one of the heads of Antichrist, verse 12 says it's actually Antichrist himself, received a mortal wound but was healed. Some sort of falsified resurrection experience or or show of some sort. What would be the purpose? Well, obviously, so that the world will worship Antichrist. And Antichrist is now given total authority to dominate the world. Chapter 13, look with me at verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, Antichrist demands worship for himself. And everyone who's not a believer will worship Antichrist. And verse 10 gives a sober warning at the very end of verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints, that even if they must be slain with the sword, to endure to the end. And now this second beast arises. Verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now this one metaphorically speaking, looks more normal. It has two horns. It's the normal number of horns. It's not some sort of grotesque representation with ten horns like Antichrist. And it comes as a, as a lamb, gentle, non-threatening, even meek. He's playing the role of prophet to Antichrist, but he isn't what he appears to be at first. It says it spoke like a dragon. In other words, he speaks in a way that reflects the actual source of his words from the dragon, Satan himself. He's the mouthpiece of the devil speaking lies to talk people into worshiping the first beast and using his lamb-like language, gentleness and and logic of some sort, non-threatening, meekness. And yet the words come from Satan. And now the greatest spiritual deception in the history of the world is happening. Simultaneously, the lost are worshiping Antichrist while Antichrist is persecuting and killing all those who don't worship him. And you can bet by now that all media and all communication to the world is completely controlled by Antichrist so that the world at large doesn't know about the persecution. In verses 12 through 14 The second beast is pointing out that Antichrist had a mortal wound that was healed. And probably the best possibility is that there was a rebellion of three of the ten kings aligned with Antichrist. And Antichrist was seemingly killed and seemingly raised to life. A a mocking parody of Christ. In fact, the second beast, the false prophet, even performed signs similar to the prophet Elijah who called down fire from heaven. Now, remember what's happening simultaneously in Jerusalem. The the two witnesses of Revelation 11 are calling people in Jerusalem to repentance at the same time. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. So we have the true prophets of God proclaiming the gospel and we have the false prophet imitating them 
Just as 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 promises, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So you have all kinds of miraculous things happening, some by the power of God, some by the power of Satan. In fact, verse 14 says that the false prophet, the second beast, deceives those who dwell on the earth. He's trying to get them to rely on emotional religious experience as a measure of truth. Look at verse 14. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now the followers of Antichrist make an image. They make an image of the beast to be worshipped, And if this sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel chapter 3, you would be exactly right. It sounds much like it. Chapter 13, verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the fore, or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell. In other words, you can't take place in the regular economy unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six six six. The beast is allowed to give breath, not life. But breath to the image, only God can give life. And so in some way, some form of deception occurs in which the image appears alive. Now anyone who doesn't worship Antichrist is shut out of the economy of the world and believers are being killed wholesale. And now we get to one of the most famous parts of the book of Revelation. The mark of the beast is the subject of, I think, some of the worst Bible study methods in the history of the world. And what about 666? I hate to tell you this, but there are some really reliable New Testament manuscripts where the number is 616. And that doesn't sound as exciting, does it? Um, Again, all the terrible Bible study methods of the past continue trying to use mathematical or alphabetical formulas to figure out who Antichrist is by means of 666. And here's how they do it. They start off with their conclusion and they figure out a mathematical formula that works backwards to 666. When I preached this a few years ago here at Grace, I proved to you that Stephen Lane Swartz could come from 666. So what is 666? We'll get to that in just a moment. Trying to figure out who Antichrist is? By comparing the Bible to the news is pointless. Antichrist doesn't rise to power until after the rapture of the church and the start of the tribulation, so we probably couldn't even identify him right now anyway. But let's go to the mark of the beast for a moment. Let's stick to what we do know. What do we know? First of all, the mark of the beast is a worldwide initiative of some sort with a physical attachment that is connected to the economy. We know that much. It's not symbolic. It is a real mark that affects the marketplace and your ability to function in it. Now, notice that this is written prior to the advent of electronic coding, and so it would seem almost otherworldly to them. But I want to be clear, the Greek preposition used suggests that this mark is on the body, not something in the body. So for all of our theories about uh, chips inserted into our bodies and things like that, this says it's on the body. 
The mark is the name of the beast or the number of his name, like an identifier that you're a worshiper of the beast. Now, since this is still future, there's nothing to look for right now. But it is interesting to me, isn't it, that although we would not say this is the mark of the beast because this is yet to be future here in Scripture, but it is interesting that we're already having a false righteousness of those who are vaccinated and those who are not. It's just a little dry run, I think. We'll see what happens. But listen, what do we do with the number of the beast? Verse 18 tells those on earth to calculate the number of the beast. It doesn't mean to do mathematics. It's a word that means to consider or to evaluate. In other words, evaluate, consider the decision to follow Antichrist. Which brings us to a very important question. If there's a call to the lost with the mark of the beast to consider or calculate Antichrist, can someone with the mark of the beast still get saved? The answer is yes. Here's the evidence. Revelation chapter 6, the fifth seal opening, we see the souls of tribulation martyrs. They're told to wait patiently until more people on earth would believe and be killed. In other words, salvation is happening from the three and a half year point forward. It is happening. Second bit of evidence, the two witnesses of Revelation 11, they're prophesying for the last three and a half years of the, of the tribulation. When they're killed, they're raised, and then they ascend into heaven. There's an earthquake in Jerusalem, and Antichrist's 7,000 officials are killed, but the rest of Jerusalem is terrified and gets saved. This is just probably days or weeks before Christ returns. What does this mean? It means that these are Jews in Jerusalem who did not care to escape See also Revelation 12, three and a half years earlier, because they were serving Antichrist. If they cared not to escape and they're right there around the officials of Antichrist, what does it mean? It means they had taken the mark of the beast. And yet now they glorify God. Here's a third bit of evidence. Revelation 14, 9. Now it sounds like this is going to completely disprove our theory here, but let's interpret carefully. Revelation 14, 9 says this, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Now, it sounds like that just disproved what we said, but notice, two times, the first variable is worshiping the beast. Receiving the mark is simply the result of worshiping the beast. The text of Revelation 13 and 14 never says this is categorically an unpardonable sin. In fact, Revelation 19 verse 20 says those who received the mark of the beast did so because they were deceived and therefore grace is available to them. Scripture doesn't say that they're automatically unable forever to repent. Do we know of somebody in the Bible who was given grace because he was deceived and he acted in ignorance and in unbelief? How about the Apostle Paul? 1 Timothy 1.13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And in fact, we would have to say that unless God says a sin is unforgivable, any sin that is repented of is forgivable. Psalm 86.5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love, to all who call upon you. 
How ironic will it be that those with the mark of the beast on their hand will then turn to worship the one with the scars of the cross on his hands. We could speculate that in this time, becoming a believer in Christ now will not only involve public baptism, but perhaps publicly removing or covering the mark. Battle number one, Satan versus Israel. Battle number two, the unholy trinity versus the gospel. Battle number three, we'll call evil versus righteousness. That's kind of all of them, but we'll make this a general one. Evil versus righteousness. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. We return once again to the 144,000 saved and sealed Jewish men we saw in chapter 7. And they're pictured as standing in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, with the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. They are the firstfruits. They are the beginnings of saved Israel, through whom many others will hear the message of the gospel. Now, when is this happening? These four verses, most likely this is a look ahead to a special victory celebration with a unique focus on the 144,000, since at this point in Revelation, Christ hasn't actually returned yet. So, so the best view is that this is a look ahead. But the bigger question here is, where is this happening? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? Well, if it's in heaven, it means that the 144,000 have died. But they're sealed, they're protected, so we would lean toward this being a future celebration here on earth. And if Christ has returned to the earth, in this glimpse of the future, then so has the throne and the angels and the elders, the church. But now Revelation 14 returns to the time at hand. The great tribulation is beginning to heat up. And in this battle of evil versus righteousness, we see three angels who preach three sermons. We'll just walk through these briefly. Sermon number one, we could entitle the declaration of the gospel. The declaration of the gospel. Chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This angel is said to be directly overhead, literally in mid heaven, the apex of the sun at noon, the highest point in the sky. How incredibly merciful of God. And when time is so short, God sends this mighty angel to give a sermon to the biggest crowd in history, everyone. Sermon number two we'll call the demise of the world. The demise of the world. Verse eight. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. 
The fall of Babylon the Great is stated as a fact so certain that it's as if it already happened. Now, the question, obviously, is what is Babylon the Great? Well, there's some layers of meaning to Babylon the Great. In chapters 17 and 18, we'll see three layers. It refers to the literal capital city of Antichrist. Now, Antichrist will set himself up in Jerusalem. We know this, but that's not his capital city. So it refers to a literal raised Babylon. It also refers to a worldwide false religion during the first half of the tribulation. We'll get to that in chapter 17. And it refers to the world systems of wealth and philosophy and independence. All of these are centered on Antichrist. You have the actual city of Babylon, you have religious Babylon, and you have uh, political or uh, systemic or uh, independence, kind of the mindset of Babylon, the world system. You say Babylon in the Old Testament, you're saying the enemy of God. That is just emblematic of God's enemy. And then you have sermon number three that we could call the destiny of the lost. The destiny of the lost. Chapter 14, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Notice, by the way, that the torment of eternity happens in the presence of Christ. That Christ is the all-present God everywhere, including in judgment. We've already established that it will be possible to repent after receiving the mark of the beast. This is speaking of those who refuse to repent. And you notice here, by the way, the Bible never teaches the annihilation of the lost, but an eternal torment. That is such an important point. For the lost to understand. But what encouragement the believers in Christ receive after these three angelic sermons. Look with me at verse 12 of chapter 14. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And let me just make a little side note right here. We always say, we want to be very careful that we don't read Revelation by comparing it to the news. But that admonition only applies to the church age. To the saints during the Great Tribulation, they're reading Revelation right next to the news if they can find the news. Because they're watching it happen. So when you are watching these horrific things happening on earth, and you come to this verse Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. How encouraging will that be to the tribulation saints, soon to be martyrs? But now the battle of evil versus righteousness begins to be set up for the final battle. And the rest of chapter 14 now looks ahead to the end of the great tribulation and gives a preview of what's going to happen when Christ returns. Here's the preview, verse 14. Of chapter 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is seated on a cloud as a crowned king. What is this referencing? Well, this is a clear reference to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, in which Jesus is seen as the son of man 
on the clouds of heaven, and to him was given dominion and glory in the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the sickle in his hand is the sickle of death. It is the harvest of death. And an angel comes out of the temple in heaven, verse 15, and he calls with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Now some would say that the Son of Man in verse 14 can't be Jesus because no angel is going to give Jesus orders. And we may have a problem with an angel giving Jesus orders, but he's not giving Jesus orders. He's simply relaying a message. He's simply giving Jesus the message from the Father in the temple that the time of judgment has arrived. Why is this important? Because Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 3, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. In submission to his Father, in some way, Jesus willingly has awaited his Father's instructions, and now it's come, straight from the temple in heaven. In verses 16 through 18, both he who sat on the cloud and an angel now reap the earth to gather it as it were, to gather in as it were those who would come against the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a preview of the coming battle of Armageddon. And look at the expected result. Verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This tells us several things about the final battle that is to come. This is the bad grape harvest of the earth. They've produced the wrong fruit. Those on earth who have gathered to destroy the good vine, Israel. His beloved Israel is the good vine. Psalm 80, verse 14, is a prayer to restore Israel. It says, quote, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. And so we have this picture of the bad grapes and the good grapes. And the bad grapes are reaped. They are judged to save the good grapes. We also see that this is outside the city, Jerusalem. It's in the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's likely the Kidron Valley between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Now, if you compare this to Revelation sixteen sixteen, this says that the battle is at Armageddon, which is not near Jerusalem at all. It's over an hour straight north, just south of Nazareth. So what does that tell us? It tells us that this battle is on a massive scale, not just limited to Armageddon, but it's also near and around Jerusalem. And in fact, it says blood flowed as high as a horse's bridle, about four feet high. It probably not flowing like a river, but it's a picture of blood splattered everywhere. And the battle takes place over 1,600 stadia, 184 miles. That is the length of Israel, north to south. Big, big battle. Well, those are the battles that rage on earth. Next, we come to really the finishing off of the judgment of God. We come to the bowls of judgment from heaven. The bowls of judgment from heaven. We've already seen the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the mysterious thunder judgments. 
We come now to the seven bowl judgments. And, and what's the picture of a bowl? What do you do with a bowl? You pour it out. Now the judgments are coming fast and furious. We're getting near the end. There's one after another, after another, after another. Christ is preparing to return. And the scene now returns from the, turns from the horror of earth for a moment to the peaceful safety of heaven to prepare for the bowl judgments. Chapter 15, verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. Remember when we opened the seventh seal on the scroll that the, the terrible, horrific surprise was that the seventh seal contains seven more judgments? Well, finally, we can see with them, these seven plagues, the wrath of God is finished. We have seven angels ready for the final outpouring of judgment. We have the tribulation martyrs who are about to sing a song in heaven. It's a compilation of two songs, really, kind of a medley. Verse 3, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, the song of Moses, we have two options. Is this the song Moses sang after the victory of Israel at the Red Sea? There's a lot of similarities, and certainly the theme of redemption and salvation is there in both. But the better option is the final song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, right before Israel enters the Promised Land. Deuteronomy 32 has at least seven verifiable parallel passages to this summary song of Revelation 15, including two direct quotes. And Deuteronomy 32 has a direct connection to Revelation 15, 5 through 8, the wrath of God cleansing the earth, particularly at the Battle of Armageddon. Because listen carefully, almost all of the song in Deuteronomy 32 tells a negative story. The future story of Israel's apostasy. We studied this when we went through the Pentateuch. 43 verses in this song. All about how terrible you're going to do and God's going to come after you. It's, it's a horrible song from a human standpoint. But then you get to the end of the song in Deuteronomy 32 and it ends with a promise that God will avenge his children and he will cleanse the land of Israel of all who have ever hated Israel. That has never yet happened. But in Revelation 15, it's getting ready to. Revelation 15, verse 5, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so the seven bowl judgments get poured out one after another after another And to put it mildly, this is what the end of the world looks like. Bowl number one, chapter 16, verse two, 
painful sores or boils for all who continue to worship the beast. This is looking a lot like the plagues in Egypt. Bowl number two in verse three, the death of every living thing in every ocean on earth. The sea now becomes a watery, decomposing graveyard, utterly unusable. Bowl number three, verse four, all the rivers and springs on earth are turned to blood. There's no more naturally occurring fresh water. And by the way, whether the two uh, witnesses in Jerusalem during, do, do, doing, during this time, they're stopping the rain. There's no water. Verses 5 and 6 label this bowl the direct retribution for all the blood of the saints that's been spilled. Bowl number 4, verse 8. The intensified heat of the sun, which is now scorching people. And did they repent? Look at the end of verse 9. They did not repent and give him glory. I mean, it's clearly obvious this is coming from God. And yet people aren't repenting. Bowl number 5, verse 10. The throne of the beast, likely referring to the revived city of Babylon I spoke of, and all the land controlled by Antichrist is plunged into darkness. Bowl number 6, verse 12. The mighty Euphrates River dries up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And verse 13. The unholy trinity of Satan, the dragon, Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet. They released three terrible demons. Chapter 16, verse 14. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And now all of a sudden there's an interruption. There's a relief. There's a stopping of the terror There's a comfort to the believers and a warning to the lost readers given by Jesus Christ himself. Verse 15, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is a call to perseverance of the saints. In other words, take this book seriously. In your Bible, that verse is probably in parentheses. It's just a, it's a warning to stop and say, if you've read through this far in chapter 16 and you're still not saved, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And what are all these kings assembling for? As previewed at the end of chapter 14, here in chapter 16, verse 16, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Who are these kings from the east? Here's what we know. They're kings and they're from the east. That's it. Stop reading the newspaper to try to figure it out because we don't know. But we do know this. They do cross the Euphrates. And the Euphrates, as I mentioned this morning, is important. The Euphrates marks the eastern boundary of the land given to Abraham and to Israel. Genesis 15, Deuteronomy 1. But now... By this point, it's likely that the destruction of the world so far, including massive flooding from the melting of snow from Mount Ararat, which is the source of the Euphrates, this will have destroyed all the bridges necessary for armies to move. And so God will simply dry up the waters. Chapter 17 tells us that 10 kings are at the core of this attempted conquest of Israel. Now, why are they marching on Israel? The text doesn't tell us, but I'm going to give you what I think is a 90% shot at the right reason in our final message because we have a lot of evidence for it. 
But what we do know is that this is happening at the sovereign plan of God. By drying up the Euphrates, God is setting the trap. All these armies have been called upon by Antichrist to come against Israel. Problem, can't cross the Euphrates. All of a sudden, it's dried up. God has baited the hook. He set the trap. But terrible things will be happening first when these armies approach Israel. Zechariah 14 says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. What is Armageddon? It's connected to the area of Megiddo, which is an ancient city on the north side of the ridge of Mount Carmel. In fact, Megiddo has been the site of major battles for thousands of years. The earliest known battle at Megiddo was in 1468 B.C. involving Egypt, all the way to World War I battle in 1917 and here will be the ultimate clash between god and satan between christ and antichrist between good and evil whatever the intended purpose of the invading armies they're soon going to be interrupted and they'll be fighting a common enemy one they can see coming Matthew 24, 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's not as though Jesus is going to appear instantly. They're going to have time to know what's going on. Revelation 6, you remember, tells us that the kings of the earth will be terrified at the wrath of the Lamb. Why? Because they can see it coming. How do we know this? Daniel 12, 11 and 12 says, From the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Okay, what are are all these numbers doing here? Well, we've already seen in Revelation 12, 1,260 days, three and a half years, starting from the time that Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel, as explained in Daniel 9. But now, instead of 1,260 days, Daniel says, there shall be 1,290 days. What is the difference? There's only one thing that can be happening in that 30-day time period, and that is the visible return of Christ for a month. Jesus himself said this. He said that you will see the Son of Man coming. And then after Armageddon, all the judgments of the survivors on earth, the sheep and goat judgments of Matthew 25 and the setting up of the Messianic kingdom on earth will apparently take another 45 days. Thus, blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. In other words, you're blessed to be a surviving believer in Christ And to be those arriving with Christ. And we're going to look at that tonight. Specifically what's happening during those 45 days. I'm going to give you seven things that are happening then. And so Revelation 16 verse 16. The armies are gathered. And they will be soon fighting a common enemy coming at them from the heavens. And now the seventh bowl is poured out. And we never, never underestimate the wrath of God. Chapter 16 verse 17 the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. 
The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones from about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. All the islands sink. All the mountains fall. They started doing this earlier in the judgments. Now it's totally complete. The topography of the earth will be massively altered. The great city, verse 19, this is Jerusalem. It's also called the great city in chapter 11. It's split into three parts. This is the same earthquake as in chapter 11. After the two witnesses are taken into heaven. Babylon the great the capital city of Antichrist will be crushed and destroyed. 100 pound hailstones. This would be about 18 to 22 inches in diameter, 50 times heavier than the heaviest hailstones ever recorded will be falling. But I want you to notice something. A little detail in here. The city of Jerusalem is split into three parts. And that sounds bad. But if you compare it to the cities of the nations, it says the cities of the nations fell. They're decimated. Jerusalem splitting into three parts is more like preparation for the coming of the king than really than anything else. In fact, Zechariah 14 gives us some details about this exact event. It says that the Mount of Olives splits, forming a new valley. And this will be the way of escape for the Jews who have come to faith in Christ very recently. Remember, many of the rest of the Jews of Judea, that area, are already in hiding. They have been for three and a half years. The darkness has been lifted and light stays perpetually as the Lord returns. Zechariah 14, a glorious life-giving river will now come from Jerusalem. The, the, as, the, as the earthquake happens, this now releases a river. And the river is going in two directions, one toward the Mediterranean and the other toward the Dead Sea. This is probably the source which will clean up all the putrid waters of the earth. And now Jerusalem will topographically and spiritually be the highest point on earth. Jeremiah 3.17 says, At that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Listen, all through the Bible, height equals power. Can you imagine God setting up his throne on the 10th highest mountain on earth? No way. He will be on the highest mountain and he's chosen to make that Jerusalem. And so even in the midst of judgment, God is preparing the earth for Christ and for his reign. So we've seen the battles that rage on earth, the bowls of judgment from heaven. And finally, let's look at the breaking of planet Earth. The breaking of planet Earth. Not only is the world being physically judged, but God is judging the world spiritually as well. And there are two giant institutions that are going down. False religion and false world systems. They're going down. First, we'll see the fate of false religion. And second, the fate of false world systems. The fate of false religion. Where did false religion begin? It really... The birth of false religion happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, the namesake later of Babylon, when the people of earth banded together to worship the stars. God confused their language so that they would scatter because a unified, sinful people on earth 
is a terrible thing. An evil but unified people will never stop in reaching deeper into sin and wickedness. Unity without submission to God always results in totalitarianism, and results in the rejection of God. You may hear idealists uh, loving the idea of a unified world religion and a unified world government, but the one world government and religion leads inevitably to a, oppression and persecution. It always does. Now, this is very important to understand about Revelation 17. Revelation 17 is not, first and foremost, chronological. It really takes us back to the beginning of the tribulation up through to the, to the three-and-a-half-year point. It's describing a phenomena that Antichrist has used to his advantage. So this is sort of a flashback. What is the phenomena he's used to his advantage? The victory of a single false religion dominating the whole world. Chapter 17 is going to call this false religion the prostitute. It's a sickening metaphor for false religion, for spiritual idolatry, for rejection of the love and the worship of the one true and only living God. In the Old Testament, the term prostitute is used metaphorically to describe Israel, God's people, when they turn away from God. And now the use here in Revelation 17, it doesn't imply that God's people have turned away, but the metaphor remains, I'm going to say, because it's probably an apostatized form of Christianity. Remember, and I don't know if you always understand this, but a pseudo-Christian religion has always been the main opponent to Christianity. What is the biggest pseudo-Christian religion in the world today? It is Islam. That is a pseudo-Christian religion. It is based off of, of the Bible, and they have taken uh, 75% of the Quran is just ripped off quotes from, from the Bible. And so why would this be called a prostitute? Most likely because it's some sort of apostatized form of Christianity, and this false religion, like all false religions, is thirsty. It's thirsty. It's first of all thirsty for power. There's a thirst for power. Revelation 17, verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Verse 15 says that the many waters, the many waters are... are uh, the prostitute are seated upon are all the nations of the earth. In other words, this religion dominates now all peoples. It will be obviously a mandated religion, government mandated. Antichrist is going to play along. He's going to pretend to be the champion of this world religion. It will control every part of the society from the economy to the military to politics. The people of the earth, verse 2, will be drunk with this religion. It's thirsty for power. In fact, verse 3 pictures the woman sitting on a scarlet beast. This scarlet beast is Antichrist, and she appears to be in control of the beast in that the unifying and controlling factor of Antichrist will be religion. The scarlet beast, we're not exactly told what the color scarlet means, but historically it's been a, a color associated with royalty, with sin, and with blood. That matches the character of Antichrist perfectly. And the beast is said to be full of blasphemous names, names of self-glorification and self-honor. But the beast has an agenda. 
And the agenda is to eventually get the woman off his back so that he can be worshipped. And the beast has seven heads and ten horns, seven past and present empires. There's more about that in verse 7. At the beginning of the reign of Antichrist, government and religion will be completely united. That's a very scary thought for us, isn't it? And woe to the ones who do not bend the knee. Not only does the prostitute have a thirst for power, but this religion will include a thirst for wealth. A thirst for wealth. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations. The woman is dressed attractively to lure the unsuspecting lost, attempting to demonstrate her legitimacy by great wealth. By the way, every major false religion from Roman Catholicism to Islam has been consumed with acquiring wealth. Why is that? Because wealth gives the appearance of legitimacy. The thirst for power, there's a thirst for wealth. This religion has a thirst for ecstasy. The end of verse 4 a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. There's a golden cup, more evidence of her wealth and power, making the nations drunk with religious fervor. Jeremiah 51.7, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Now we might say, oh, that can't ever happen. Have you walked into a store and had a little old lady yell at you for not wearing a mask? What has happened? That is religious fervor that has grasped the masses. And she feels that she is representing the new religion. And so, of course, we see that that can happen. When the government and the religion become one, then people who want to fall in line with that see themselves as heroes by falling in line with it and denigrating those who won't. On her forehead was written the name of mystery. One ancient historian records that women in Rome would wear some mysterious name written on their foreheads to excite interest in them. In this case, it's simply a mystery who needs to be explained. Verse 7, I will tell you the mystery of the woman. What is the mystery? She is Babylon the Great. Now, in this verse, John isn't speaking of the location of ancient Babylon or rebuilt Babylon in the tribulation, a symbol of all worldly resistance to, to God. In a moment, we do see a literal city. But in this case, Babylon is, he says, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, the source of all false idolatrous worship, a one world religion, all the, the horrific, uh, uh, horrible uh, falsehoods of religion from all time, all now compiled into one, put together. And Antichrist is cooperating with the false religion leading a revived Roman Empire that is religious in nature. Although, as we'll see, it's likely as capital city that will also be a rebuilt Babylon with a great involvement in Jerusalem as well. So you have this mixture of the city and false religion in the world systems. By the way, can we think of a giant religion that's based in Rome right now? Of course we can. Rome's history is full of the accounts of vile and debased immorality from the leadership down. In fact, the historian Tacitus said that Rome is, quote, where all the horrible and shameful things in the world congregate and find a home. 
And this false religion will promise much and it will deliver in the mystery and ecstasy department. And the world's thirst for a religion of power and wealth and ecstasy will end up where all power-based movements end, a thirst for blood. Chapter 17, verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. There's an insatiable appetite for violence against all who don't go with the worldwide religion. John says that when I saw her, I marveled greatly. It means that he's shocked. He's appalled. The woman is beautiful. She's magnificent and evil to the core. Ultimately, when the veneer is taken off fake religiosity, it reveals a hatred and an enmity of believers in Christ. Can I tell you this? Don't ever think you can make friends with false religion. You can't. They hate you. And ultimately, the end product is that they want you dead. Chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Doesn't that sound sort of godlike? The beast, Antichrist, who was and is not. Remember from chapter 13 that he faked a death and resurrection. It's at that point that he would insist on Antichrist worship alone. But he's going to destruction. He will go down in history as the first man to actually rule the whole world. But his judgment is on the way and the dwellers on earth, the unbelievers of the world, they'll marvel to see the beast They'll be fooled by him and his so-called resurrection. But the elect of God won't buy into this. Verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And there are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. The seven heads and seven mountains are seven kings. In John's day, Five empires had already come and gone. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. One is, that is Rome. And one was not yet come. Antichrist revived Roman Empire, but headquartered in a rebuilt Babylon. None of the first six empires actually ruled the entire world. The last will be the exception. And Antichrist will rule the world. By the way, these six empires were always the centers of the major false religions of their day. Always. And so they are the seven heads which support the beast, but they will remain only a little while. It'll be a short-lived reign, this final kingdom. Now, interestingly, verse 11 mentions an eighth beast. You can't really be rigid about this, but it could be that the seventh beast is the pre-faked resurrection antichrist and the eighth beast is the same man after his faked resurrection but now now his strategy is totally different he started with diplomacy he started with peace and cooperating with a one world religion but suddenly he will begin his reign of terror that we saw in revelation 13 in which he must be worshiped Verses 12 and 13 speaks of 10 kings in league with Antichrist. And what will their main agenda be as those in league with the worldwide false religion? Verse 14, 
They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. The mission of these ten kings ultimately will try to be to conquer the invading Lamb of God. Now, the ultimate end of these kings we see later in the description of the battle in chapter 19, and we'll do that tonight, but the Lamb will conquer them. We get a preview of the end there. Well, for a while, the woman, the false one-world religion, and the beast, Antichrist, will coexist. But eventually, at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation period, as chapter 13 records, the false prophet of the beast will insist on Antichrist worship alone. Look at chapter 17, verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. And now we begin to transition from the fate of false religion to the fate of the world systems. The fate of the world systems, verse 18. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The woman is the great city. Now, some feel this is still metaphorically speaking of all the religious elements of Antichrist's empire. Others feel that verse 18 now refers to a literal city since Antichrist is, is leading this revived Roman Empire. But the angel repeatedly refers to Babylon on the Euphrates in chapters 17 and 18. And if we compared chapter 17 to Jeremiah 50 and 51 and to Isaiah 13 to Isaiah 47... It would be clear that Babylon here is not speaking just of the religious system and not just the world system, as we'll see in chapter 18, but an actual city. And also the depiction of destruction here in chapter 18 is clearly literal. So this is most likely a rebuilt Babylon. Now, metaphorically, Babylon refers to the system of false world religion and an actual city. Chapter 18 refers to the world systems in general. So in Revelation, you always have those three parts of Babylon, actual city, religious system, world system. The destruction of the city of Babylon is prophesied in Isaiah 13, Isaiah 14, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51, But with many Old Testament prophecies, there is an immediate fulfillment and a later fulfillment. This is obviously the later fulfillment. In fact, if you looked at those chapters in the Old Testament, there's definitely an end times flavor to it. And so we would look ahead as this end times being the ultimate fulfillment. Chapter 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living." The earth has been cast into the darkness of the great tribulation, but this glorious angel lights up the earth with the reflected glory of God. Now, remember, we're also talking about an actual city, a revived city of Babylon as the headquarters of the revived Roman Empire under Antichrist. 
But this city is is as wicked and debauched as possible. Verse 2 says it's infested with demons. In verse 4, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. This is an evangelistic message to the elect to come to faith in Christ and to abandon the idolatry of worldliness. This is part of the greatest harvest of believers in history. Remember, Revelation 7, verse 9, pictures saved people from every single people group on earth. Now in heaven, those who refuse to take the mark of the beast and are, and are martyred from every people group on earth. And verses 4 and 5 is a call to believers also to refuse the temptation to inculcate themselves into the world system, even for the sake of basic necessities, even for the sake of being able to buy bread and to have water to drink. It's a command to God's people to come out both because the actual city will be destroyed and it's an admonition to not be part of the the total depravity of the world system, to reject the enticements of the idolatry and the reliance on luxury and violence. In fact, in verse 5, it says that her sins are heaped high as heaven. It literally says they're glued or mortared together like the bricks of a tower heaped up in rebellion against God. And God has remembered her iniquities. You know that God has kept a record of every sin of every human being ever since Eve. Every single person. Only the sins of those covered by Christ's sacrifice are forgotten. And they are cast as far as the east is from the west. But God is going to shut this city down. Verse 8 says, Through death, by plague, there's mourning, there's famine, there's fire. And then verses 9 through 19 records a lament, a sorrow of three different groups. Here are the three groups, verses 9 and 10. The kings of the earth lament because their infrastructure, their power base is being destroyed. Verses 11 through 17, the merchants of the earth are weeping and wailing. Verses 12 through 13, in fact, lists all the treasures they've lost. Their obsession with stuff has now just, poof, gone up in smoke. And verses 18 through 19, the shipmasters, the companies that transport goods, their business is up in smoke. What is this talking about? Mankind has been living under the boastful lie of other independence from God, completely independent of God. And now God is taking it all away as the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments are falling on the earth one after another after another. The systems by which humanity keeps itself aloof from God are absolutely crumbling. They're going to nothing. But all of a sudden, the mood changes drastically. While those who are independent of God are mourning and weeping and lamenting, verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Heaven has a completely different perspective. And what a lineup. The saints, all who have come to God by faith. The apostles, the one who first proclaimed the gospel. The prophets, all who have been commissioned by God in all the ages to proclaim repentance and forgiveness. And it says they are rejoicing. We get our English word 
euphoria from this. Those who have pursued Christ, who are with him now, while those who have pursued self-gratification are reaping the cost of that idolatrous decision The world systems are going down. Verse 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard and you know more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found and you know more. And the sound of the mill will be heard and you know more. And the light of a lamp will shine and you know more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard and you know more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. All false religion, it's destroyed. All the world systems, destroyed. I think this is a pretty clear call to ask the question, whose side are you on? You must be on the side of Christ because this is your fate if you're not. Chapter 19, verse 1. At 7 o'clock. Pray with me for a moment. Thank you, Father, for this time. We're terrified by the judgments of God. And yet because of this, we look to the cross and we see the the shed blood of Jesus Christ upon whom the wrath of God was poured so that none of what we've spoken of this afternoon will be our lot. We praise you and thank you for the cross. We praise you and thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.